First, you must realize that you have no idea before you can know the idea. We scan across all the frequencies if we want to learn anything new. Let us begin. What has physics done for me lately? Furthermore, the equation E is equal we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and to destroy nature. That's like when you're in physics and you get a dream about saying, oh, this is a physics excursion. What is it all about? The whole of human history all falls in the dust of one stroke of the nail file. You can't really get to grips with evolution unless you realize uh, what an enormous amount of time. Our own planet is only a tiny part of the vast cosmic tapestry, a starry fabric of worlds yet untold. Good morning. You're tuned in to what can only be described as the best radio station on this blue dot we call Planet Earth. It's 4ZZZ. Beat on your conventional wireless radio by tuning into the classic frequency of 102.1 FM. Digital devices such as DAB or Smart Speaker are listening via the Community Radio Plus app or streaming us live from our sensational website at 4ZZZ.org.au and of course you can always listen back to us or any 4ZZZ show for that matter using the ingenious on-demand feature also found at that URL. We also have a podcast now. So type into your favourite podcaster the show name which is called No Idea, spelled with a K, your weekly dose of science, sometimes with an asterisk. <laughs> and joining me today to speak all things science are some of my favourite science communicators. Good morning, Jay. Good morning, Max. And good morning, Gabriel. Good morning. Hello. Well, this is the year 2023. 2023, the fourth year of the COVID-19 pandemic. For the fourth year in a row, the Ig Nobel Prize ceremony is not in its traditional home, Sanders Theater at Harvard University. This year, do any darn thing you like. Don't identify the nearest exit, shout at your phone, or eat something. It is, Max. The 2023 Ig Nobel Prizes. Five days ago, that stream went up yeah. announcing the year's Ig Nobel Prizes. If you haven't come across it before, it is an award that has run since 91. Yeah. Been doing this, based out of Harvard by a sort of fake magazine called Improbable Research, and they really <laughs> just do this every year. They give awards out to the Ig Nobel Prizes, which are awards that make you laugh and then make you listen. That's the idea. So throughout the show, we have all sort of plucked out Ig Nobel Prize winners from the year, and we're going to run through them uh, and take you through the 2023 Ig Nobel Prize winners. We've got electrified chopsticks. We've got uh, <laughs> horny fish that changed the weather. What yeah. else have we got, Max? What's yours? Oh, I don't know what mine was. What did I say last night? <laughs> People licking fossils. Well, what's that That's about? It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we all go take you through how, how the many, 12. How many, how many hairs in your nostrils? Yeah, based on cadaver research, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so we'll take you through to midday, talking science, specifically talking Ig yeah. Nobel science this morning. What I don't have lined up, Max, mm. uh, because it didn't happen this year, so I feel mm. 
I feel like we can't engage either is usually one of the best parts of the Ig Nobel Prizes in the awards ceremony is because it's happening in a theatre and no one likes long speeches, it's the Ig Nobel Prizes so they don't need to listen to long speeches. <laughs> so they have every year yeah. assigned a person called... Oh, what's it called? Miss Sugar Pants or something like that? Like it's a, it's a young girl yeah. who walks up on stage after their set amount of time yeah. and screams at them, please stop, I'm bored, <laughs> until they stop. <laughs> on repeat, please stop, I'm bored. Please stop, I'm bored. Constantly until they stop. They didn't get it, didn't get it this year because they could just turn off the Zoom cameras. Yeah. But Amazing. I, f- I feel like, Max, mm. at any point, for anyone listening, 0420-626-733 is on them. <laughs> if at any point... You are bored. Text us. Please stop. I'm bored. If we get enough, we'll cut it. I reckon that's fair, right? In the spirit of the Ig Nobel Prizes. 0420-626-733. Text us. And we need to set some ground rules, Max, with this please stop, I'm bored thing. It's the Ig Nobel Prizes. They've just been announced. We're running through them this week on the show, through our favourite ones anyway. There's been like 10. We can't get through all of them. I did put it, I said you can text in 0420-626-733. <laughs> if you're bored and we've gone over time, you can text in please stop on board. Yeah. was not an invitation for please stop on boards. <laughs> the very second we put on our first track, <laughs> behave yourselves. What we'll are take we doing legitimate wrong? police stops on board I, I only. I think we've opened ourselves up to realising how much the people out there <laughs> really don't like us, which <laughs> might be a bit of a bad move on our part. Like, <laughs> like a sideshow on to 4 triple Z. Please just play music. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Who wants to kick it off? I hope you weren't waiting for a weird science from me because I was given a task to do a story this week and that's that yep. takes everything that I... <laughs> <laughs> well, we did, I thought the weird science was going to be the Ig Nobel Prizes. Is that what we're going to do? Well, we or? can do... You can do yours as your, Ig, your weird science, Max. The rest of us have done our homework and, and oh! have an actual oh, which story. One's, which one, oh, yeah, I've written down which ones I'm doing. Yeah, cool. <laughs> okay, okay, there you go. go. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got? So I did the education prize. So this yep. involved Katie Tam, Sinia Poon, Victoria Hugh and Wonjon Van Tipberg and Christy Wong, Vivian Kwong, Gigi Wan and Christian Chan received the Ig Nobel Prize in Education for methodically studying the boredom of teachers and students. So, in essence, what happens is if the teacher looks bored, the students get bored. If the students are bored, it's a, sel- it's a self-fulfilling uh, thing, wh- which happens, apparently. So, <laughs> if you've got a really exciting teacher, everyone's excited to go to class. Mm-hmm. If you've got a very boring teacher, yeah, you don't want to go to that particular <laughs> lecture or class. So, that was what they found out. Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. <laughs> wow. At least they quantified it this time. <laughs> and the other one I found was the psychology prize. And this was by Stanley Milgram, Leonard Bickman and Lawrence Bickowitz uh, were awarded the ignoble Nobel Prize in Psychology for their experiments on a city street. The study measured the number of people who stopped to look upward when they saw strangers looking upward. And what they found that they, if they just put one person there as a, as a control in the experiment, looking up at something up in a building, very few people would actually uh, respond to that. But if they put 15 people there <laughs> looking... <laughs> it's a bird. It's then, a plane. It's 15 people looking up. <laughs> <laughs> 
So people attract people, basically. So job done. They're, they're my two. I don't think. Go. I think if fifteen people are looking upwards, that's not like being manipulated. Oh, we got you. That's like a survival instinct. Like if <laughs> are looking at a weird thing. I feel like at that point yeah. you should be looking at it too, right? right? Like yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's something's falling from the building. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Also, also like were they all just like standing in yeah. like this yeah, group? In, in a group, yeah, yeah. And so, I would scatter them. And they were measuring yeah. people coming up to the group to look up, and also people <laughs> walking past and looking up. Right, so right. That, that would also count as someone looking up, even though they're on the move. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh I do God. do this all the time, though, when it's only, like, one person or something. If yeah. someone gives, like, a good inquisitive look up, yeah. I, I'm a sucker for that. I'll follow that. We should go, we should go to the Brizzy City today, shouldn't we? Yeah, and, and just stand there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 if you need something to do with your day, stand still and look <laughs> up right. and see what other people That's do. It. Bonus yeah. points. You can't look around to see if other people are looking up. You just kind of have to. All these spotters. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They'll just be us on the Mac's balcony just watching all these poor Maybe suckers. Maybe we get Dave to spot for a spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. You got a weird science, Izzy? Um, no, I'm afraid not. But I did look, have a look at the literature prize. Yes. All right. Well, hold on. Into that later. I've got, I've got a weird later. too. My weird science this week is a group of geoscientists who have used barnacles to reverse engineer part of the drift drift path of debris from the MH370 aircraft. Yes. The the flight, the M- Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, parted Kuala Lumpur International, International Airport in Malaysia on the 8th of March in 2014, and about 40 minutes later, blipped off the radar and never came back again. I think most of us are familiar with everything that's transpired in the about 10 years since that. Mm-hmm. But a year after the incident, Debris started washing up on the coast of Reunion Island and then Madagascar Island and then Mozambique, which from east to west is like an island off the east of... a tiny island right off the east of Africa and then Madagascar, slightly further west, off the east of Africa and then Mozambique, which is the east coast of Africa. So they start, it started washing up. But when that fo- those photos started coming out, an associate professor at the University of South Florida... QS ranking, anyone? Uh, 39. 563. Oh. Oh. This associate professor said he immediately began sending emails to the search investigators because he said he knew the barnacles on the debris could provide clues about the initial crash site, even though it was a year later. Initially, I saw this and I thought it was going to be a quick weird science story because I was like, oh, okay, I, I, it's probably like they can see which species of barnacle are on the wing and then go, okay, which species would have been like in their larval stage in different parts of the ocean at this time and do it was a guess that way about yes. where it would have been yeah. not that at all so much cooler than that so much more amazing than that it is using the biochemistry of the barnacles shells because barnacles produce new internal layers for their shells every day kind of like tree rings growing bit by bit and, yep. and, and piling on so the chemistry of every single one of those layers changes based on the surrounding temperature which means you can potentially use the rings of a barnacle shell to read the temperature that barnacle was in in the past. Yes. Uh, yeah, I know yeah. heading. Yeah, yeah, cool. Following. So yeah, over the last yeah. few decades, like potentially you could use this to 
reconstruct temperature history. Mm. And over the last few decades, the associate professor Gregory Herbert and his team just happened to have been developing methods to use the shells of marine invertebrates to track past ocean temperatures. Um, how they actually do that, the actual method involves the word isotopes, so I'm not going to subject you to that. Just trusting <laughs> Gregory and his team that they did it. They figured out how to get historical temperature from the layer of barnacle shells. So when they saw those photos of the debris from MH370, they saw the barnacles on them and they're like, we could figure out the temperature of the water yes. that debris has been in through time using the barnacles and from that use known temperature records and current records to track possible pathways that yeah, could yeah. have led that barnacle through those different temperatures and from that get the initial crash site, right? Yes. So that's what they tried. Gregory Herbert and his team with the help of Uni Galway, QS ranking, in uh, Ireland. Oh, uh, 800. 349. 86. 289. <laughs> they got given some of the younger barnacles on the debris and they used the technique they'd already invented to plot out the temperatures those barnacles had been in. Yes. They used about 46, I think, barnacles. And then they lined that up with a bunch of simulations. They had from the barnacles that they had, they knew a start temperature. So they're like, okay, on this date, because you can do day-by-day day rings. So you go, okay, on this date, the, it started in this temperature. You run, they ran 50,000 simulations of different points that match that temperature to track which ones, like what could happen with current and temperature records. And then they lined up the temperature those barnacles had actually been in to see which of those 50,000 paths most closely matched what the barnacles had been through. And what they got were five likely pathways. Really? They're all different but similar, yeah. plotting the path the debris may have taken for 154 days before it washed up on Union Island. So about half of the drift time, the second half. Mm. And to give you a, a sense of where the drift paths went, if you picture in your mind sort of the east coast of Africa to the left and the WA on your right, Madagascar is just off the coast of Africa. Reunion Island is a bit further to the east from there. And they sort of took it to maybe like a quarter of the way or a third of the way from Reunion Island to the west coast of Australia. So it's sort of going horizontally along the surface of the earth or the, the water hmm. and, and taking little zigzaggy paths as it followed the best temperature fit because apparently this area of the ocean has like really variable temperatures in, in between different local levels. So it was really good. They can get local level tracking of where yeah. these barnacles would have been. Yeah, yeah. The problem though is they've only tracked it back into that bit of the ocean which was like about halfway Mm. and from halfway to when it washed up on the beach. They can't go any further back than that because they don't have barnacles that are old enough. They were only given young barnacles to do this test with, which means we're in a bit of a limbo now because they need older barnacles to use this method to track it back further to try and get an initial crash site. Mm. Keep in mind, the, the full wreckage has never been found, so they still look for uh, yeah. the original crash site. Yeah. And uh, I sincerely hope that they do get these older barnacles that lets them finish that tracking back to a potential site where the MH370 may have crashed. Um, because like from what they got, three of the five possible paths all sort of had a very similar start point to get to Reunion Island when it washed up. But anyway, for the moment, I think what they've been able to do already is pretty incredible. They toiled away for two decades trying to extract sea temperature records from barnacle shells and other marine invertebrate shells, which is like thankless research. So many people dismiss science like that and they call it useless or a waste of funding. Right. And I'm sure they got some of this when they were doing it. I'm sure they would decline so many funding rounds, but they kept pushing with it. Mm. And because they stuck with it for two decades, suddenly they had this opportunity to apply this barnacle shell science yeah. to try and track the origin of a disaster that ended up killing 239 people. And so I 
sincerely hope they get given access to some of the older barnacles and can use some of this science to hopefully bring a bit of closure to the families of the people involved. Uh, and that is my weird science. That's good, for isn't it? Barnacle shell down that rabbit GPS. Hole with me. That's pretty very amazing, cool. right? Yeah. That's really cool. That's so good. I think this whole show is a science experiment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, let's let's just get into the science. Our safe space. Triple Z, we want to appeal to your senses. You tune into 4ZZZ, and the show is No Idea with me, Max, Jay, Izzy, and Gabe. And we just got a call in from Bones. He's out in the water, Morton Bay, catching some fish. Going to give me the final count at the end of the show, so I'll announce that out. They're up to two already. We'll see how well he goes. What are we doing next, Gabe? Well, what we're doing next is giving Bones a bit of a fright because he might be changing the weather, Max. This is what we have from our friendly neighbourhood marine scientists. If you haven't been keeping up with us, Ig Nobel Prizes were launched, I think, five days ago. And we're running through our favourite of the Ig Nobel Prizes, the prizes that make you laugh and then uh, think. I think that's the slogan, right? Then first, first you laugh, then yeah, you think. Yeah, first you laugh, then you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> the one. Uh, and, and so our friendly neighbourhood marine scientist was looking through the list and found one from the physics a prize that matched her niche perfectly because it found that sardines could be manipulating the weather. Fish. It's fish! If I gave punch tuna, I'd be an abomination! I'm late because I had to go to the store and get peanut butter because all we have is, is stinking tuna! Lilo, Lilo, why is this so important? Stitch controls the weather. Okay, obviously I, your friendly neighbourhood marine scientist, love Lilo and Stitch, so I love that quote. But years later, it actually turns out that Lilo might have been right. I mean, ignoring the fact that from the animation, Pudge looks like he might be a mini miniata groper and the fish that we know control the weather, anchovies. Well, okay, sort of. So, you see, this paper came out last year in Nature on oceanic mixing and how it affects circulation. The ocean has major circulation patterns like the Gulf Stream and the East Australian Current, you know, the EAC, boo. And these patterns are the product of different bodies of water within the ocean of different temperatures and densities. So, lighter, warmer waters sit at the top, while the denser, cooler waters sit at the bottom. And... These differences cause the water to move. For example, water approaching Antarctica is going to cool, and because of that, it will sink, which in turn will pull in more water at the top to cool. It's a circulation, circle, get it? And it's not just these large planetary currents. Patterns of circulation occur at all spatial scales, from the entire Pacific to within the palm of your hand. And the small scale stuff influences the bigger stuff. For example, if there are a load of little currents mixing, then there isn't as much of a temperature gradient to cause bigger movement. I do want to be clear that temperature and density are really only one part of it. The tide is obviously super important, and you know that's about like planetary bodies. And the wind also plays a role. Though ocean mixing also influences the wind, so it's a two-way street in that regard. But all of that is fairly well known. What we don't have yet is a firm grasp on how biological movement affects this. This is sort of different to imagine in our world, but think about worms in the soil. Every day they move around and they dig and they mix the soil around them. And even though they're small, insects actually have a massive effect on how soils work. It's not just physically where the soil is, it's also nutrients. And for the first time, a study has shown how fish may do the same thing for our oceans. The study, led by the University of Southampton, monitored water turbulence in the northwest coast of the Iberian Peninsula for about 15 days. And they found that every single night there was a huge leap in mixing like similar to the levels you'd find in a major storm. But the skies were completely clear, so what was going on? 
Well, using information from the ship's echo sounder and samples that they literally collected with nets, they figured out that the signals coming through were being caused by giant shoals of fish. You see, every night, thousands of these fish would rock up to the bay because it was spawning season. And as the fish were getting it on, it caused enough overall movement for the turbulence. But then it's like, how did such tiny fish make a difference in temperature? And it turns out that the bay that the researchers were working in was highly stratified, which essentially just means there were very intense layers, not usually much mixing. And in this case, the layers are also quite thin and close to the surface. So those little fish can actually have a big difference in mixing. And while temperature change in the oceans occurs over tens of meters, near the coast where the temperature changes faster and closer, the researchers think that biologically driven mixing like these fish could be incredibly important, which is actually kind of huge. As the lead researcher put it, they were set up to study how turbulence affects marine life and they ended up showing for the first time that marine life can actually influence ocean turbulence, which in turn influences marine life. And this has huge impacts on oxygenation and nutrient cycles and all sorts of stuff in the ocean. But these fish are literally shaping their own world, making their own weather. I mean, kind of. I had to link it back to my boy Pudge, you know? You tuned into 4 Z and we just hit... I knew I Oh, it's it's the it's the golden egg of four triple Z. You tuned into four triple Z, and the show is no idea with me, Max, Jay, Izzy, and Gay. And Jay, you got a bit of science for us yes. to read out a deep dive, Ignoble if you will. Science. I have another ignoble oh, for us all. Beautiful. So this is the literature ignoble prize. Right. I'm a big literature fan. Yes. Uh, this one is about jamais vu. You guys heard of that one before? Where you repeat a word. Jamais vu is the opposite of deja vu. Oh, is it? <laughs> it's like oh, I see. Yeah. I see what they did there. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's when it's when things stop being familiar. So you know deja vu is when like you're like, oh, this is weird. I feel like I've been here before. Yeah, jamais yeah, vu is the opposite when it's like, I know I know I've experienced this thing before, but it suddenly feels very strange. It's described as a bit of a loss of fluency. Mm. You know, sometimes when you're doing like an activity that's like really like muscle memory by this point by like driving or like something like that and then it, you're just like suddenly super conscious and you're like, whoa, do I know how to do this? Maybe that's just me. Oh, Maybe that's yeah, just this me. is my every day at work. <laughs> I just, can you do this? I think so. I've definitely done it before. Yeah, yeah. And these people are looking specifically into the idea of word alienation. So that's when you repeat a word so many times that it stops meaning anything to you. Mm. I love, I, they mm. had this little quote of someone from 1919 describing it. And I enjoyed that they described the experience as becoming a morsel frightened of the word, <laughs> which in my experience is true. Like when you, it kind of is though. Like when you, when yeah. you repeat a word a bunch of times and it starts looking weird, it, it kind of freaks you out. It freaks me out. I'm like, I'm scared of this word now because it stopped making sense. <laughs> no? No one else? <laughs> no. No? Okay, that's fine. Sure, Jay. <laughs> Sweet Teddy <laughs> University, Jay. Come on. <laughs> 
But there's not a lot of research into jamais vu as opposed to deja vu. Interestingly, some of the research that does exist out there is looking at OCD checking behaviours and how that experience of jamais vu can cause a bit of a positive feedback loop. So they did research where they got someone to like check a stove 20 times and they found that like the more times you did it, the less certain you were that it was definitely off. So it was kind of looking at how that experience can create that positive feedback loop that can make those behaviours more intense for people with OCD, which is really interesting. But they wanted to look at word alienation to see if experiencing jamais vu is linked to experiencing deja vu. They got 94 participants and asked them to write 12 words 120 times. Four of them were really rare words that we like never really use. Four were kind of like your middle of the range words and four were super common words. Now, the participants weren't told that they were looking into jamais vu. They were just told they were looking into how many times you can write a word in two minutes. Classic um, psychology experiment. Whatever <laughs> they tell you you're doing, they're doing something else. <laughs> Get the suit. Um, but if they felt like stopping writing during the thing, they were asked to like explain why, uh, answer a few questions of why, like write down the time and explain why they stopped. And the reasons they could choose from were like, my hand hurts, I'm bored, or it started feeling weird. And then they asked them questions about, like, why did it start feeling weird if you answered that and that sort of thing. So 70% of the participants experienced jamais vu, um, an average of four times each. So, yeah, 70% of people noted that they stopped writing because it just started feeling really weird and it was freaking them out, basically. The most common reason given was that it looked like it was spelt wrong, even though they knew they were spelling it correctly. The second most common reason was that the handwriting looked strange. And then the third was that it didn't look real. One of my favourite responses that they had from participants was, it doesn't seem right. It almost looks like it's not really a word, but someone's tricked me into thinking it is. (laughs) Which I I liked that way of describing it. Um, They found that it was way more frequent to experience jamais vu um, with the high-frequency words, the words that we use quite often, which makes sense because... Like, the whole point of it is it's like something really familiar stops feeling familiar. So, those sort of strange words that we don't use very often or may may not have ever seen before, we don't have that kind of familiarity there to lose it in the first place. And, yeah, they basically found a pretty strong correlation between having experienced deja vu recently and also experiencing jamais vu. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. (laughs) You're more likely to experience them together. We still don't know much about what exactly it is but it is very interesting and it made me giggle it made me giggle especially because when they went up to get the receive the prize their acceptance speech was just going the 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 (laughs) the, over and over until it lost all meaning which i think is very funny golden yeah that's my ignoble Beautiful. Everyone at the station knows uh, which shows the most appreciated. Uncancelable. Uncancelable. That's what I love to say about us. (laughs) (laughs) Everything we do, everything we say, everything we've ever put online, uncancelable. Yeah. You tune into 4ZZZ and the show is No Idea with Max, Jay, Izzy, Gabe. 
Okay, it's time for the best part of the show. Loosely defined as science, yeah, you already know. Everybody listens to you for Triple Z just to hear us talking about what Butters just did. Subscriptions just keep rolling like the tires on a car. But something tells me that our science covers won't go far. But unlike an engine, I won't keep you in suspension. We're all here to hear him talk, so let's give him attention. You're not ready for when he starts rapping. Gonna hand the mic to Max, and I'm not talking Van Staffen. Lights out, and away we go! Such a nice cut, that. Supercars happen on the weekend. It's the start of the endurance races for the V8 supercars. Red Bull drivers Brock Feeney teaming up with his boss, Jamie Winkup, made a perfect start to the supercar season of endurance, surviving a late restart to win the Sandown 500. Extreme E also happened on the weekend. This is the all-electric buggy category. They race around on these Odyssey 21s. It's now season three. Hopefully they'll get... Uh, season four, they'll introduce hydrogen-powered cars. That'll be interesting. It was race eight on the weekend. Christina Gutierrez and Fraser McConnell took the win in the Lewis Hamilton-sponsored X44 ahead of Nico Rosberg's X Racing, or RXR, in second. Third was ABT Cupra XE, uh, do you know what APT company is? It Always be touring. <laughs> 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 Apparently, they were founded in 1896 as a blacksmith. Cool. So Always it's a pre- pretty blacksmith. <laughs> 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 what is it? No, it's just ABT. I don't know. It's, uh, it's, I, you didn't even look it up. <laughs> I love how you get angry about my motorsport. <laughs> <laughs> and then fourth was the GMC Hummer EV and Jensen Buttons sponsored team, the JBX E team, had a DNF. Now, F1 happened on their weekend. It was in Singapore and it was a brilliant race. Izzy, did you catch it at all? Yes. It was quite fun. It was. Not seeing Max Verstappen, number one. No, it wasn't. It was a non Red Bull podium. Woo! <laughs> Not the same result multiple times. (laughs) Ferrari's Carlos Sainz won from McLaren's Lando Norris. And third, it was hammer time. Lewis was on the podium. I know. Condolences, though, to the other Mercedes driver, George Russell, who on the the 60-second lap, the very final lap, (laughs) the wall must have moved or something. He he clipped it. And took out his uh, uh, right-hand rear and had a DNF. So he could have potentially won. He probably was going to get second. But he could have potentially won. But no, it was not to be. Sad face. Cool and race, though. Very cool if you race. Wanna, if, you, if you're a fringe F1 fan, highlights for this one, definitely worth watching. <coughs> nice. uh, because it was the first time in ages that were like four people vying for the lead in yeah. the very last lap. I can't remember the last time we had that in a in a race that wasn't some weird safety car sort of thing. Like yeah, it was yeah, just genuinely right. racing, yeah. Uh, and and yeah, awesome stuff. And the um, Japanese uh, F1 this weekend, and it's it's uh-huh. at, it's Ooh. at a, a nice time too. So you can actually watch it in Australia at a normal time in the <laughs> afternoon. So that and it's my favourite circuit too, Suzuka. So yeah, we'll give it that a go. Nice. And finally, the Valtteri Bottas and Roman Grosjean report Valtteri. In the F1 at Singapore, recorded a DNF on lap 51. The Alfa Romeo slash Sauber team is still investigating the cause of the failure. Meanwhile, here's some breaking news about Roman Grosjean. <gasps> the Phoenix 
has now received his wings in the form of a commercial multi-engine pilot license. Whoa, that's cool. Job done. Nice. Very good. For him. Uh, Ricardo is not racing this weekend, from what I've seen. Yes. Uh, the Aussie in F1, his his hand is still hurty. Yeah. So he's not going to be racing. But he will but be. He has t- yeah, go on. You do. Being confirmed, I think, which you're about to say, yeah. has been probably about to be announced that he'll continue with the team for next year. Yeah. They'll, so they'll, they'll, announce, nice. they'll announce Yuki this weekend because it's in Japan. And then Who's the following. his teammate. Yeah. yeah. And then the following uh, week, oh. they'll um, mention uh, that uh, Ricardo's going to be in the seat. Nice. Cool. Uh, ABT. Uh, Hmm. Um, yeah. Either advanced business technology, oh. or I think it's more likely advanced blacksmith um, technology. Technology. <laughs> technology. Yeah, I, I think, think it's so. a world of Warcrafting, <laughs> but I was like, that's close enough. <laughs> We've moved on. <laughs> now, Max. Shoes. Yes. Before the hour, Jay, you had the story on the the ignobo prize of repeating words and how easy it is to have words seem. What's the phrase? It's not deja vu. The opposite. Jamais vu. Jamais vu. We had some quality text coming off the back of that that I think we just need to take a moment to acknowledge. Both Andrew and Quacked It, who put that in as their official subscribe name before Triple Z, continue to bring the comedy. Both of them with the same joke. Andrew just texted in like, 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 and Quacked It just texted in JJ, 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 at the same time. Quality 0420626733 is our number if you want to text in. We'll do some more Ig Nobel stuff after this. Max, what do you got? You tune into Four Triple Z, and the show is no idea with Max, Jay, Izzy, and Gabe. What do you got for us? I've got more ignoble. It's ignoble science week for us. I no idea the ignoble prizes were announced. Uh, we've been through a couple of them. I've got one, another one for you, which is I think pretty good. But just ground rules before we did invite people before the show to text in. <laughs> In the spirit yeah. of the Ig Nobel Prizes, which when they get announced, if they go over time, a small child walks on stage and says, please stop, I'm bored, and repeats that until they stop. We said you can text us in if you are bored to please stop, I'm bored, during the Ig Nobel segments, after an allotted amount of time. Not <laughs> at the start of the segment, not during Max's racing science <laughs> journey. What? Uh, I would never be S. on my phone during this show, <laughs> let alone texting in. Use it wisely. I've got a question that I'll ask you, Max. Based, Mm. this is a this has been a trend that was doing the rounds of TikTok a few days ago. But this is, you know, we have to be a bit late on the trends because we get a show every week. (laughs) It's the question for you, Max. This is a you question. Yeah. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? (laughs) (laughs) I think about on average. Probably once a year. I think about the concrete they made. That's about it. (laughs) That's the most Max answer. <laughs> Jay, is he? Well, see, I've been I've been exposed to the meme, and because I'm still on that part of Twitter that's nonstop talking about succession, I've just seen uh-huh. lots of memes about the fall of the Roman Empire, and it's just about How Roman roids. So daily, <laughs> hourly, <laughs> even. Yeah, is he? Um, I always what do it? Uh, at least once a week, maybe. I always think about the Colosseums. And how I, whenever I walk through Queen Street, I just think, who would I pit against? Gladiator <laughs> 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 stuff. Yeah, so at least like once, mm-hmm, once or twice mm-hmm. a week. Amazing. So this, the whole trend was that the, it was like girlfriends of boyfriends. Oh, like discovering that the the man in their life thinks about the Roman Empire way more than they were comfortable with, like on a daily basis, <laughs> thinking about like the Ro- like that sort of stuff. Like, could they beat that person in the gladiator ring and that sort of thing? I'm getting into that as a really wide 
tangent to lead into my Ig Nobel science because uh -huh. what the Romans use for currency is what I'm talking about okay. for science. There We're we talking go. about salt. How about that? So <laughs> how long the is the amount of time before people can text in that they're bored? Well, they're, I, I think it starts now. <laughs> okay. uh, the timer starts now. The rest is preamble. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Keep shifting those goalposts. Go on. Salt. Some of us love it. I love uh, others. Others of us love it a bit less. We'll start that again. Start the timers again now. <laughs> but but all of us eat too much of it because the Food Standards Authority for Australia, New Zealand, and the World Health Organization say we should eat about two thousand milligrams of sodium a day, which is about five grams of salt. Uh, that's what you get, 2,000 milligrams of sodium from a teaspoon of salt. But a study in 2018 found that the average Australian adult is eating about 9.6 grams of salt a day. So we're basically eating double the amount we should. Um, just for reference, like if you eat three quarters of a large pizza, that's your daily intake done. If you eat mm -hmm. uh, two slices of white bread, I think that's about a seventh of your daily intake of sodium done. There's a lot of salt in bread. Uh, we, the World Health Organization says that leads to higher blood pressure. I'm really nervous that people are going to text in, please stop, I'm bored now. Yeah, yeah, Doc, uh, DJ, 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 I was uh, texted in. Please stop now. <laughs> You're hitting us right Nine in seconds the sodium ago. game. Like, come on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. High blood pressure, heightened heart disease risk, all of this, these massive health effects can come from increased salt intake. But here's the thing. Max J, is he, I, even though I've said that, and even though I'm going to tell you that uh, eating too much sodium is linked to an estimated 1.89 million deaths every year, will you decrease your salt intake after this? I've, dude, as a kid, I would like go into the pantry and just like crack <laughs> some salt out. on yeah, my yeah, yeah, palm yeah, yeah. and lick it straight off, yeah, bro. Yeah. I love that I stuff. Think, <laughs> I still do it. <laughs> <laughs> know, yeah, there you go. We're not going to change it because it tastes good. Uh, so this Ig Nobel Prize has been given to not someone who's who's fixing the behavioural problems of people eating too much salt. No, we're dipping in to our beautiful capitalism and saying if there's a problem, we should solve it with a product. And these mm -hmm. Japanese researchers at Meiji University, QS ranking, anyone? Oh, I wish I looked that up. Uh, 38. Uh, 42. Uh, uh, 29. It's a, it's a range. It's between 1,001 oh. and 1,200. Oh, okay. Yep, they get into <laughs> the range after 1,000. Okay. Uh, they have developed a chopstick device that lets you eat your food while being lightly electrocuted, and they got an Ig Nobel Prize for it. And I say device because it's one stick of the chopsticks that has the buzz via an Apple Watch-looking thing that you wear on the hand holding the chopsticks. And I don't know why they didn't use a fork or something that is just like a single implement rather than have two and only electrocute one That's of them. Really but they've got... They've got 36 adults who were trying to reduce their salt intake and got them to eat some low-salt foods, usually the, using these electrically stimulated chopsticks and some straws as well. And when the device was on, with the electrical stimulation activated, they perceived the saltiness of their food to be 1.5 times higher than when the device was off. And they also perceived that low-salt food to be overall richer and tastier uh, and, and sweeter. Um, the researchers say this is because the light electrical buzz adjusts the ions of things like sodium chloride, so salt and sodium glutamate, or sweetness. That's what they're saying. There isn't a lot of... This paper's very short. A lot of these ignoble studies are like really small papers in really dodgy journals. Uh, <laughs> so there's not a lot of like actual explanation about what's going on at a chemical level here. They don't really clarify if the people can feel the electrical stimulation. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they like... Uh, so, that, like, if people could feel it, they might 
tell people that they're tasting stuff differently than if they don't feel a buzz when they're eating the food. I don't know. It's a very weird study. But yeah, that's what they found. They had these electrified chopsticks and straws and, and using them to eat low salt foods made them taste saltier and sweeter and richer. Nice. I find it really interesting that they did it in Japan because Japan's quite well known for having a high sodium diet. Yeah, they love their KFC. They're <laughs> no, they're also surrounded by oceans. So they're, yeah. they're ingesting a lot of salt. And I was going to mention when we talk about whether or not that's changing like the Australian sodium intake, a lot of times people like actually the Japanese population live for longer despite having a, a higher sodium diet. So it's interesting that it happened in Japan, like this study, because mm-hmm. mm. they live like sodium highs. So they, I saw some research on the Japanese side. It was only like a gram higher than the Australian intake of sodium. I think our massive consumption of like white bread and stuff like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So not sodium too. declared things, I guess. It's yeah, yeah, yeah like secret. Yeah, secret. because there's been other studies. They actually the same one that found how much Australians are eating, like nine point six grams a day, double what you're supposed to. Mm. Also found that if people were using trackers or like uh, food diaries or stuff like that, mm. that their reported intake was more like six grams. And when they actually did this urine analysis and factored in what you're actually getting mm. from including the stuff you don't track, it's 9.6 grams. They're like, wow. it's way wow. higher so than we think just it is. Absent. That's so interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, Max, Hi, Max. Are you right? <laughs> Hello? Max, this is your turn. Hello. I learned that you can hear the difference between different water temperatures when they're poured. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pour one after the other mm-hmm. into a different glass and you have to tell me which one is which temperature. I've got a hot and a cold. Mm-hmm. You ready? Yep. Right, here's the first one. Any thoughts? Is this the bodily fluids again? <laughs> yeah, I'm saying cold. It sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah? yeah? Okay. Yeah. Here's the second one. <laughs> oh. Well played. Shut up. <laughs> That's right. Still <laughs> the best thing I've just ever done. Hands down. It's better every time. Although getting, I think I got four police stop on board during my last That's story. True. <laughs> that was, including a chop chop on board for the chopsticks. That That's was right. pretty good. The show is No Idea on 4 Triple Z. We just let Dave in for Eco Radio. Yippee. But we're going to hear something from Izzy. Yeah. So there are some Just a casual reminder too that this is another Ig Nobel story. Yeah, so you can text Ig-Nobel. him please stop on board as much as you'd like. Okay, I'm <laughs> trying so hard to, Please don't let me be the most boring person in the room. <laughs> so no one texts in. Let's go. Yeah, no Can one I do speak? it. Can I speak? Jesus. <laughs> All right, well, let's skip that part of my intro. <laughs> there, is, there are some sciences you can lick and some of which you cannot. Like I wouldn't recommend licking psychology or engineering or maybe even zoology where it can lick you back. <laughs> The I, the EV <laughs> Nobel Prize for Chemistry and Geology came from Jan Zelanskwitz with a stellar newsletter post outlining how much scientists can learn from licking rocks, more specifically fossils. So, just a science side note, this technique is used when working with evaporites, which are chemical sediments that are precipitated um, from the water in our saliva following an evaporated concentration of dissolved salts. So basically our wa- the saliva in the the water in our saliva creates reacts, reacts yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah. So we're able to actually mm. taste mm-hmm. what we can't see. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna read out some of the segments from the post that had me really intrigued, including some history on this technique. 
So, wetting the surface of the water allows yeah, the fossils and mineral textures to stand out sharply rather than being lost in the blur of intersecting micro-reflections and micro-refractions that come out of a dry surface. This is Jan's words. Um, Zelenskwitz also cited Giovanni Arduino, who set up the primary, secondary and tertiary orders of strata and was also a known rock licker. In his letters to his good friend... <laughs> Say that to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually it's actually a, quite a refined technique. Thank you. Um, in his letters to his good friend and scholar at the University of Padua, uh, Arduino outlined the experience of licking fossil shells in a mud rock with coal fragments, saying, "quote It burns like fire and leaves a flavour <laughs> equally bitter and urinous." Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> what's that? What's that? Now, hold on, hold on. Like urea. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It once spat out, it leaves a certain sweetness and a skinned tongue, which bring oh that boy. to the next wine tasting. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of the post, of course, strongly recommend reading it, um, goes more into the ancient history of your fossil licking techniques and their edibility. <laughs> but I'll leave you with this food for thought. <laughs> it is part alchemy, part sensual experience of rock. Part scientific analysis. And of course, in days where there was no chemical analytical equipment and indeed no framework of chemistry in any way that we now understand, it is a sensible means to throw in a little light on those enigmatic but useful rocks. So... That's your chemistry and geo- so good. geology um, category. Prize. <laughs> Did you get two? That pulled... No, two awards. Well, it well it's in a category. category. Yeah, it's called the category is called. Well, there's a little bit geology. of chemistry in there, yeah. but mainly geology. Yeah. Lickable sciences, huh? <laughs> I really didn't think you were going anywhere near the word urine in that story. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in there. Yeah. Well, there Wasn't go. there a dark mirror thing about this too? I feel like I've seen mm. something on dark mirror about dark mirror? dreams. That's the yeah. one. Yeah. Dark Mirror. Dark Mirror. That's the DC version. <laughs> like, I, feel like, I feel like there was an episode. <laughs> that's a worry, isn't it? Anyway. Oh, that's my normal form on this show. It yeah. is. You tune into 4 Triple Z, and the show is No Idea, your weekly dose of science with Max. Mm-hmm. And we're giving you an annual dose of Gabe. ignoble. Easy. And Jack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm really talking over people this morning. I sound like such a dick. Uh, yeah, ignoble this week. Uh, and one of them, we, of, of like the 10 prizes that went out, one of them we'd covered before in the show, which was UJ with V. Do you remember this? Yeah, I love this story. It was fun as. It was like, uh, the, the, the short story is reanimating the corpses of spiders, but we'll let UJ and V from last year take this story away. Hey, Jay, what are you up to? Oh, nothing much. I'm just going through our past stories. Gabe wants me to review all the topics we typically cover. Wait, what? You're telling me our segment gets audited? This is community radio. We don't even get paid. It's not like that. He just wants to know what we usually talk about so he can make us an intro. We're pretty eclectic, though. I'm not pulling out any strong themes. I guess we do have a strong tendency to talk about biohybrids, though. Do you remember the zebrafish story? Now that you mention it, I do actually have another biohybrid story for you. Well, the specific term they're using is necrobiotics. Necrobiotics? You mean necro as in dead? Mm Mm-hmm. Essentially, we've got a bunch of researchers from Rice University turning the bodies of deceased wolf spiders into claw machines for picking up small things. It's part of the soft robotics field, 
Essentially, machinery using non-traditional materials like hydrogels, textiles, chemicals, and even organic materials, as opposed to the traditional hard plastics, metals, and electronics. V, literally how could you say such a devastatingly horrific thing so calmly? This is too much for me to comprehend. I feel like I need 10 minutes for my brain to reset. How do you even control a dead body? Why would you want to control a dead body? Um, wouldn't it make just like way more sense just to use traditional machine materials like metal and plastic? Okay, I can see this is upsetting you a little bit, but stick with me. Let me tell you a bit more about the anatomy of spiders so you can wrap your head around why soft robotics works. Unlike you and me, spiders don't have antagonistic muscle pairs. This means they don't have two sets of muscles that can push and pull something back and forth. Now hold on, you're hurting my biodegree dropout brain. Right, right, right. Okay, to demonstrate. Try curling your arm up and then stretching it back out. To do those two motions, you're contracting two different sets of muscles. Now, if you weren't human, but rather you were a huge spider... Finally a concept I can get behind. You would just have one set of muscles for curling your limbs in. In order to straighten them out, spiders don't use muscles like we do. Instead, they use hydraulic pressure. Hydraulic pressure like in engineering? Yep. The spiders have a little chamber in their head full of blood. When they want to stretch out their legs, their little hydraulic chamber contracts and pushes blood all through all the valves in their legs. Think of the blood chamber as an air pump and their legs like little balloons. In their naturally relaxed state, spiders are actually all curled up. They activate their little pump when it's time to extend and move. Ah, uh, is that why spiders always curl up when they die? Because they stop actively pressurizing their bodies? Yep. When a spider dies, it can no longer control its little inbuilt hydraulic system, but all the parts and valves are still there, which is where these researchers from Rice University come in. Oh my god, I almost forgot about that bit. So this study was published in the journal Advanced Science. The researchers were able to control the spiders by sticking little syringes into the hydraulics chamber in their heads. By puffing small amounts of air in, they could get the limbs to extend and retract, like a little robot. In the words of the lead researcher, after it's deceased, the spider is the perfect architecture for small-scale, naturally-derived grippers. I ask again, did we really need to do this? Like, we've all read Mary Shelley. Has society really progressed to the need for Franken-claw machine? Like, okay, I kind of get this project as proof of concept. But what about in practice? I'm struggling to think of real-life scenarios where this would actually be the most practical option versus just using more orthodox robots or machinery. You're probably right, to an extent. But this research is still very new. In an interview with the Daily Beast, lead author Fei Yap said, Because the necrobotic gripper has inherent compliance and camouflaging capabilities, we envision that we can deploy it in scientific fieldwork. For example, to capture and collect small insects and other live specimens without damaging them. The paper outlines some other advantages over traditional electronic robotics, such as being biodegradable. Okay, I guess I understand why they might be useful, although I think you also risk traumatizing entire generations of insects with stories of robot zombie predators. How strong are these spider grabbers? The dead spiders can pick up more than 130% of their own body weight and last over a thousand retract and extend cycles. 
The researchers also experimented with covering the bodies in a coating of beeswax to slow down the degradation of the dead body. Ah, sweet man-made horrors beyond my comprehension. I literally may not sleep tonight. Like, I think actually the theme of our segment is just challenging each other with the most awful science we can find. You know, this sort of makes me think about the ethical dilemmas we face as we reach a technology level where it's totally feasible for us to, say, reanimate a deceased actor through CGI for cameos or to finish their parts if they passed away during filming a movie. There's something that rubs me the entirely wrong way about not even death stopping your body from being exploited for labour. Are you worried about the labour rights of dead spiders? It sounds funny, but, like, I actually am. Well, at least you're consistent with your views. All I'm saying is that if the dead spiders need a spokesperson to get in talks with Big Ecology, they should give me a call. What the fish count from bones? <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Six brim and one freaking huge whiting, apparently. Nice. Ooh, How cool nice. is that? Yum. You're tuning in for Triple Z, and the show is No Idea, and it's time for a bit of this. No Idea Space News. Stokes Space has flown its Hopper 2 vehicle at a test site at Moses Lake, Washington on September 17. The vehicle, using an engine powered by liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, rose to an altitude of about 9 metres before landing safely to conclude the 15-second test flight. They say we successfully completed all of our planned objectives. Uh, We've also proven that our novel approach to robust and rapidly reusable space vehicles is technically sound and we've obtained an incredible amount of data that will enable us to confidently evolve the vehicle designed from a technology demonstrator to a reliable reusable space vehicle. So I say watch out SpaceX, but SpaceX has really set the reusability bar pretty high. They've got a booster 9 that has now flown... How many times do you reckon it's flown? Uh, I have no idea. 17 times. Okay. Well, for one booster? For one booster. That's pretty damn impressive. It is, isn't it? Over to Russia. Soyuz MS-24 has delivered three more people to the ISS. The three were scheduled to launch to the station back in March this year, but... Their mission was scrubbed because they needed to use the, the MS-23, which they were meant to go on, <laughs> because the MS-22, which was on International Space Station, got that coolant link. Remember that? So oh, yeah. they had to let it go and just burn up. And they had to send up the MS-23 uh, uh, with no one on board to pick up the crew that was meant to take the MS-22 back to, back to Earth. So they went up in the MS-24 and they arrived safely. Job done. You want to hear about drugs in space? Hell Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> a modified drug termed BP Nell Peg has displayed superior efficacy for bone tissue without causing observable adverse effects. To test the drug's effects for countering bone loss due to spaceflight and zero gravity conditions, researchers flew 40 female mice to the International Space Station back in 2017 and observed another 40 at the Kennedy Space Centre in Florida, the control. Both the groups exhibited a significant significant increase in bone formation. While the drug has shown promising results in mice, there is still some way to go before it can be used to help uh, humans form more bone. 
I mean, there's been 40 mice on the ISS for yeah. the last few years. Yeah. Imagine if they got at least loose. a few years at yeah, a time. Yeah. What? How do you keep a mouse at the ISS? <laughs> Don't they float? It's a big hamster wheel, obviously. <laughs> like, what if they need water or food? How does that work? This is well. This is next week's topic. Yeah. I think we need to talk about this next <laughs> yeah. week. Okay. How, do you, how do you keep a forty <laughs> mice alive and Can't like even, in a study <laughs> on the ISS in, in space, man? <laughs> <laughs> like, rat traps. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I have to cue this music one more time. This is probably the last yes. time I'll, I'll play this music because there's a big reason why uh, Dave keeps logging himself out. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Okay, you're not going to believe this. What? Mini, Go on. Mini chopper. Ingenuity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Has achieved a number of flights that I thought was probably pretty well impossible to reach. It has now flown 59 flights. All right. So that means it's only one more flight before I must hand over the no idea number of flights mantle over to Izzy. Who I must say was late to the party with no 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 no, no 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 none of that of oh, sixty nine yeah when ingenuity was on say flight twenty five I'm thinking Gabe we started this bet yeah and Gabe, it was, oh it's like ten flights in I think because one of us guessed you guys were 10. twenty I guessed thirty you did I thirty I thought I was like Jay said forty, 40 yeah you split the difference yeah, yeah. Max went someone 50. else said forty five one of our listeners. And then I said 50, and then Izzy said 69. So only one more flight. Mm. I, I always I bet just, on 69. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 and that is it for the Space News. <laughs> this I can't week. wait to put this in my resume. Like, Here's a formal example of my radio yeah, work. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Gabe, sign us out. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to No Idea with Max and Jay, Izzy and V and Peter and T running the playlist for us this week like she does all weeks. Uh, thank you for tuning in. As we played the Ignoble game with you for the last couple of hours, if you want to listen back to the show, pick up any of the stories we covered or any of the songs we played, fortunezorg.org.au is where you want to go. If you just want to catch a podcast version with all the songs edited out, that's available now. If you just search No Idea, you should find it. Uh, no with a K, of course. Max, uh, Eco Radio is up next. Yes. Izzy, what's happening? Talking dingoes. Mm. All Talking things dingoes. dingoes. Uh, we'll be back in your airwaves next week, 10 to 12. I wonder what uh, the that is all we have time for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 that is all we have time for this morning. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Peace out. See ya. Later. Bye. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. Science.